being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong now let me ask you this so getting into timothy mcveigh specifically so one of program to chill's favorite truisms right is that all history is family history Mm -hmm. and i appreciated that early on you discussed timothy mcveigh's family history and so I just wanted to ask, what was his childhood and upbringing like? And like, what was he like as a child? And I know that there's a few things we can really chew on. So Tim McVeigh is born in, in, in Lockport, New York, which is Western, like really the, the West, the most Western part of, of New York state. And he's in a blue collar family. His father works at a at a factory, um, as as most people in Western New York you know, do. And you know, from the outside, it, it, it's pretty typical. Um, he's got a mom, a dad, and two sisters. Um, basic, you know, just not basic, but you know, just regular blue collar family. As a as a kid. He's described as charming, intelligent, witty. He always like very helpful. He was a happy little boy. Um, very though attuned to others, attuned to the suffering of others. It, there was like this sensitive element about him. In the archives I was in, and this was one of like uh, the things that I was like, holy shit, this is wow. There was a lot of um interviews with his neighbors and family friends and family members and what comes out is is um some issues with his mother and so from my perspective i don't like to demonize his mother i i don't like to be like what a shitty mother yeah because look maybe she wasn't ready to be a mother or maybe she wasn't um her the way that she was allowed to be a mother wasn't enough for her like maybe she needed to be you know more than than just a you know typical suburban housewife mother but but anyways something else comes to light here and that's the the she always expressed fears privately she she felt she was in danger mm. she didn't quite that I know of, say by these particular groups or these people, but she, she had she she felt that she was in danger um, and under some kind of a threat. People called her paranoid. Like, oh, she was she was always paranoid. Um, she would when when Tim. So I go back and forth. Sometimes I call him Tim. Sometimes I call him McVeigh. I think with me it depends on the context. But um, it's it's so interesting because like when i've done like uh serial killer episodes i've found that i unconsciously will use the first name almost until they're like murder someone and then i start using the last name yeah yeah that's yeah and when i'm talking about like tim mcveigh as a child he's he's not mcveigh the face of terror he's a little kid yeah so i just want to explain like if i call him tim it's not like an over leak it's not because i feel it's it's 
anyways, I, I think it's mm-hmm. self-explanatory. But so from the, and this is coming from neighbors and family friends. They're saying, and it's more than one, from the age of like five or six years old, his his mother would like induct him into and what may, and that's important, what may or may not have been paranoid delusions. And so that may or may not is kind of an important phrasing, um, but delusions that she was being spied on. Um, so mm-hmm. sometimes she would sit at the window in the living room, kind of like with the lights out, watching outside of the window, saying like, there's people that are going by the house, they're watching the house. And sometimes she would do this with Tim, with 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 her son. And at one point, like Tim calls the neighbor and tells the neighbor, like, there's somebody in the neighborhood casing our house. And he's like six, seven, you know, he's a little kid. And uh, and I just, you know, he's calling the neighbor, like, I just want you to be aware there's somebody in the neighborhood watching our house. So that's so you have like this surface, like, oh look, they have this little house and there's like tight little family and whatever. But then there's this kind of stuff that that is starting to happen at from a very early from a very early like um, time in his life. And so, in on one level, you could be like, well, he was primed for for this kind of deeper thinking, or like knowing thinking that there's more going on here than. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just like, let me ask you. Was there ever any indication that she was paranoid about anything in particular, you know? I never saw something identifying the cause of her paranoia. Mm. And I think, I think that her paranoia built on itself. So while, let's say there was a cause or there may have been a, a cause, like, okay, yeah, there's a reason someone's going to be casing my house. That that fear kind of started to snowball. Um, mm. So her paranoia grows, but it it it's long lasting enough that that I don't discount that there was possibly a good reason for it, and even the defense team because they didn't always write everything in the report sometimes and at one point they're ordered to kind of make allusions to things and instead of like putting it in writing but even in in that they leave room for questions they're they're not 100 sure either that she's just you know fruit loops yeah because like when i was reading that i was just like oh shit what is, what on earth it was his mom doing but like you're, but then you're like, okay, well, what, was she crazy or was there she actually up to something or yeah, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I attempted on more than one occasion to speak to his sisters and his father, and I don't blame them that you know they they didn't ever get back to me. I don't blame them because of what they went through after the bombing and like, oh my God, they were surveilled. They were harassed. They were dr- obviously blamed for his actions. They were dragged through the mud. So I don't blame them for that. Um, mm-hmm. 
And the the people close to the family that I was able to talk to, they were very protective of not violating like some of those family secrets. The reason I have some of those family secrets is because McVeigh's defense team documented mm-hmm. them and I got access to those. So um, the only way, <laughs> I believe if I was ever able to talk to a sister, that would be very enlightening because then maybe she, somebody close to her would be able to identify why, like what, what was she scared of? Like, who did she think was watching her? Yeah. Different things come to mind, but I don't even want to voice <laughs> them because <laughs> right. No, I mean... totally. Well, so as I go through his childhood, you know, yeah let's maybe we'll pick that one back up um Mm. but uh his mom his mother her name was nikki she just she's she's she made strange statements to neighbors and friends and they said it was really hard to tell if, if if what she was saying was real or not um and so as we go along, so that's just something that that McVeigh, that Tim is dealing with as a child, and that his mother is dealing with. Um, now, his mother had a lot of energy. She was she was young. She was, by all accounts, very very pretty. She was like kind of she was very social. She was extroverted. She 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 liked to have fun and she liked to talk to people and. And, and that was, that made her happy. Um, but this caused a rift between her and, and McVeigh's and Tim's father, Bill, um, because, and so <laughs> the neighbors and the family, quote unquote, friends would, would say like, she couldn't settle down. You know, she craved attention, you know, domesticity seemed to to bore her and suffocate her she was ambivalent towards motherhood i can't fault her for that how she chose to act on it is different but like yeah uh, it upsets me um that 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 she's supposed to be some kind of perfect you know female specimen and just as like the lone wolf narrative perhaps puts way too much blame on McVeigh at the expense of, I don't know, everyone else involved. Like, it does feel like that sort of, like, liberal, in the broad sense of liberal, like, just idea that, like, oh, well, McVeigh did everything, and, you know, a lot of it is because his mother's kind of fucked up, and it's like, that doesn't really explain anything. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Right? It's, like, not fair... Just like you're scapegoating Timothy McVeigh, probably you're they they end up scapegoating the mother as well. They do, they do, and it's it's not right. Like, well, then look at like look look let's look at the institutions itself as the why. Like, you know, this isn't enough for her. Is that enough for any? It is enough for some people. It just didn't happen to be enough for her to sit at home and like change diapers and clean the house all day. I, I think people, yeah, I think people appreciate it, though. I remember when I was defending my dissertation at my defense. I I, I don't want to 
I, I doubt they'll ever hear this, but for whatever reason, one you have three people on your committee and they kind of grill you. And one of them brought their wife. Their their wife was there. I she was a yeah, she was a, also a professor. She was also a professor, but she wasn't my professor. She was like a literature professor, but she was there and it's very intense. And then she brought she had never read my dissertation. So she I don't know why she did this. She said, um, yeah, but his mother, she's like, how she didn't say fucked up, but you're just like, how horrible is that? Like his mother abandoned him. And I'm going to get into that in a second. And I just this is horrible. I'm I'm so sensitive sometimes. (laughs) Unless I'm like getting chased by Nazis or like feds or like talking to someone in the field. I'm very sensitive. I just started fucking crying (laughs) in the middle of my defense when she said that. I was so overwhelmed. Yeah, well, I mean, they separated. It's not even entirely like she she abandoned, quote unquote. Yeah, but they said that, and and even like, Mm. yeah, people that knew, like, well, his mom abandoned him, and and the uh, it's not she didn't abandon him. This, you know, what happens is her and his father, who, by all accounts, is kind of an emotionally detached. You know, he's a good provider. He's you know he fits the mold of what he's supposed to be um in in this like family institution but you know he's he's detached and uh she needed more and um so they end up they split up they get back together a couple times but they she moves and at that point you know there's a choice which is a horrible position i'm sure to put a kid in but he decides to stay with his father and the sisters go with the mother she didn't it wasn't like nothing that would lead to becoming the worst domestic terrorist (laughs) oh hell no no right so no like this happened like it none of it seemed particularly out of the ordinary Mm -mm. necessarily no now she she started drinking but to even tim now even tim says so in this case i'm relying on his word but He's saying, no, I, mean, she, I never saw her like drunk at home. You know, she would she would go out and drink at bars, you know, and maybe she she drank to excess. It didn't disrupt her taking care of him when she was home. It disrupted the marriage. And, you know, yeah. but um, she did, you know, she 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 was drinking, but that was usually out of the house. Um now the book goes in so the book goes into that a little bit more because it's it is a little more complex than that but um she <laughs> he remembers Tim would remember being a kid and and like hearing his parents bedroom was next to him and, and hearing them fighting and it was about her wanting more sex and so I don't know like you know what the deal is like what I wasn't in that room, of course, but she did begin to have affairs. Um, she was not satisfied mm. in the situation she was in, and and well, this is what I'm gonna say. And now this is gonna make the mom. I, I guess I just have sympathy, even for her even with what I'm about to say but there was the defense was told 
that they suspected that something had happened to Tim, something sexual, that there was a marked change in him at a certain age. And he was kind of became very body conscious and, you know, exhibited symptoms that are, that are, that are usually um, attributed to to people who have been sexually violated as children. It, It is possible that she brought men into the house at some point. She, as it is, as the time approaches before her and the father make a final break, it, there seems to be some inappropriateness about the affairs that she's having, and um, possibly Tim witnessing or at least sus- suspecting that she's sleeping with somebody other than his father. Um, so okay, I. I don't know if I've answered. I had like this whole tight answer for you about that. And now I've just. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like it's unresolved just because we just like, it seems like no one really has the full picture, right? No. Well, no one like other than the McVeigh family, I guess. And and the, the, there was a couple close, yeah, a couple close friends and neighbors. But like I said, when you talk to them, they, they didn't want to be the ones to like expose the McVeigh family skeletons. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at some point, McVeigh Tim does start to resent resent his mother. You know, when when she leaves his father, but that's normal. That's like not on her. Anybody who's had like parents separate or divorce or not be together to begin with there's there's there can be resentment especially if you have another parent um (laughs) demonizing the other parent but i was gonna ask so because it comes up in a different thing i'm working on but around the time when he i think there's that marked shift in you know being body conscious and some traits of being abused perhaps he also around that correct me if i'm wrong around that same time he really develops into a having like a complex fantasy world right yeah that's that's um so the the one of the first is, so there in 1977 um there there's a huge blizzard in in western new york and it hits buffalo the buffalo like lockport area particularly i mean Anyone that's lived in Western New York knows how bad these things could be. Like I would be in school, we'd have a one of these kinds of blizzards and school would be shut down for a week. Um, mm. But like, this is just all, you know, all, there's no power, there's no food. You, you can't get, you can't get out of your house. You, everything is, is canceled and you're basically like now living in pre-industrial times. But uh, his mother was at work and she gets stuck like at all she gets stuck she can't even get home the roads are so bad and and he's just in the house with his father and he says like that was one of the first moments where he realized like uh the need for survivalism you know like prepping they didn't call it prepper back then but like this is some of that Mm -hmm. he also starts to become extremely immersed in 
in popular culture. So like he does, he does start to like, um, <laughs> when he would watch TV, he, he would just absorb the stuff. He loved the movie War Games, um, which is mm-hmm. 1983. Have you seen War Games? I did a, a long time ago. I don't recall too much, but I know the premise and so forth. So it's it's about a kid. I think he was a, like you know, probably ninth grade or something. Um, his name is David Lightman, but uh, he's extremely intelligent kid, <laughs> um, but kind of a kind of a slacker, you know, a goof off. But he's very intelligent. But he loves computers, and he ends up getting into a NORAD supercomputer that runs um, war game simulations and and risk assessments. And he hacks into it, and then there's this whole plot of like they're on the verge of nuclear war because this computer decides there's a threat and it's going to send missiles and the world's going to end. But anyways, the, the he really loves this movie about this kid that becomes a hacker and he gets one of the first computers. And like, we're talking about the early eighties and not, you know, it, it wasn't like now. And it's funny to talk to people that were, don't remember anything before the internet because Mm. it wasn't there wasn't always computers i'm sure i don't need to say that but sometimes i do in life to people and so he has one of the first computers he also ends up he has a modem and he he's designing by himself he's teaching himself sophisticated to to like programs sophisticated computer programs um and, and this isn't like just something he says that you have to, to believe him or not. Like everyone knew this, his friends, his family, his teachers um, knew that he had this. He even constructs one of the first early bulletin boards, which is kind of like, I guess, the equivalent of a chat room. Maybe computer nerds mm-hmm. are going to crucify me if I get anything wrong here. He He gets an online identity or a, what do you call it? Like a screen name. He gets... His is the Wanderer, um, and he's known in high school as a hacker. Like, oh, that's that computer nerd guy, uh, you know. So he's he's hacking into he uh, he hacked into banks, government agencies, and this is on a Commodore sixty four. Um, he was able to figure out how to charge phone calls to other people's bills like you know probably back then they didn't have such cyber security but um early like freaking and so forth exactly yeah um he at one point hacks into a, a government agency and this message pops up um saying you are on this system illegally um and and he says he got scared like at that point he gets paranoid, but I don't know that I would call it paranoia, but he'd be like, oh, I, you know, he kind of for a few days after that felt like someone was going to come and arrest him or something. Um, he got into <laughs> White Sands Missile Range, but he didn't get mm. far. He didn't get like far into it. He got far enough where he was like booted out of it. Um, so so there's that. Um, and now going back to this other question uh, of like, what could have been happening? Obviously, his mom was in a hacker and she was already like paranoid about 
and I'm saying paranoia and I don't mean to use it as a slur, but she was like worried about something that, you know, other people didn't seem to be worried about. At this point, and I don't have any, there's no paper on this. I can't prove anything like this. But let's say hypothetically, and I'm not even like preaching this. I'm just saying, let's think like as an experiment here. If something happened early on, earlier on than than the army, if weird things started to happen to Tim McVeigh earlier than the army, this would have been one entry point for those things to start happening. Yeah, off mic, we were talking, and I <laughs> raised the question, like, if we're talking pack of wolves or something, it, or guilty agent, or it's so on and so on, like, my question was, at what point did they, and we'll, like, leave they undefined, at what point did they get to McVeigh? And as it turns out, the question, you know, th- there's hints at least hints that it could have been before the military right he he could have come to the attention of powerful no i don't know entities as early as ninth grade if it if he hadn't been before through whatever his mother was involved with it would have been yeah it could have happened now we'll get into Kelspan later but like yeah. He got the attention. He he very well could have gotten the attention of somebody. Yeah, because I was, you know, discussing like there are cases where the feds identify underage hackers and will get their hooks in them, and that can look like various different things. Uh and this is true for other countries as well. So, like, this may have very well happened to Julian Assange, for example. Can you tell? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So he was a well-known hacker when he was still underage. I want to say he was living in Australia, and he like <laughs> the the whole story hasn't entirely been clear, but it seems like he might have as a young adult gone to Europe and maybe infiltrated a hacking group and then informed on them uh, in the tail end of the cold war type of time. And then like Assange's family were connected to a cult. And so like, there's all kinds of super weird stuff going on with him. But like the, the point is that like the, I, I guess you'd still call them feds. I don't know the foreign government entities seem to have like latched onto him and then used him for various operations ever since basically. But basically there is this president of hacker kids getting flagged, if you will, and maybe starting some kind of relationship. And then separately, you know, that I have looked into this, several other researchers, the idea of gifted kids in general being groomed for various things and grooming in multiple senses of the word, I guess I would say. And what would that grooming process look like? Well, for example, like the most obvious one, I guess, would be Jack Sarfati, who was in a 
uh, after school program with Walter Breen, a confirmed pedophile. And there's talk, it's, I'm not exactly sure if it's like proven, but there's talk that this underage program was like doing like psychic research for some reason. Oh boy. This was, this would have been like something like the fifties or sixties. Okay. And he goes on to become like this weird quantum physics propagator. You know, he's involved in some weird Esalen stuff, but like there were other kids that ended up doing different things from that after school program. There are other cases where it's like less nefarious, where gifted kids are just put into a pipeline to eventually become like some kind of state you know assets or something like, uh, national security or something yeah exactly i'm gonna make there's different pipelines basically i'm gonna make a list right here of all the things i'm gonna ask you to send me like more information about when we're done and and mm -hmm. and that would yeah. that would yeah. be one of them be um so let's just think about it for a second we're talking about <laughs> yeah. 1983 right it's not like every kid uh, has a computer attached to their hands or a phone you know it's not like that it's an anomaly it's it's not common a pretty small like pool of people to look at basically right and now we know like of course darpa you know there's institutions and agencies that that are big you know that are developing things related to computers right if you all of a sudden you're like oh this kid just popped up on the screen like we got one like what it's so rare why I, i'm not going to say why wouldn't you because you wouldn't because it's a kid but like if there's not a big pool of of people to pull from to to develop if you're working <sighs> i guess what i'm trying to say is what he was doing was rare enough that it could be valuable to somebody. Yeah, at a minimum, someone somewhere probably wrote his name down in case he ended up doing something else. Sure. At a minimum. And, right, and so. it wasn't a secret. His teachers know, his friends know, his family know. Now, while Western New York, it, it was, it's deindustrialized now, but it was, you know, it was like a lot of factories and there is also a, there is a tech element to it. There is um, a lot of defense contracts. In fact, I think right now it's probably what's keeping Buffalo alive. But, you know, there is a technological um, development um, industry and that had been there during this time as well. So it's not like they mm -hmm. have to come from you know, far, far away. They're, they're there already. So this is not in my... I don't want to call it a fantasy because it's a fantasy is it's not like what I wish, you know, but in my dark imaginings, and I've never said this publicly, I don't think, I, I don't think I have, yeah. but then I've, you know, that I, I could envision a, that as a scenario. And in fact, if I was writing fiction, I would include that <laughs> scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah you know he gets so he gets whatever he watches on tv i mean his absorption rate and this is noted by psychologists and psychiatrists later um and just people that do him like he becomes extremely absorbed you put him in front of a tv and he absorbs it and he's absorbing now we're talking the cold war here this is like 80s 80 early mid 80s cold war stuff 
um, you know, Mad Max, the movie The Day After. I don't have you seen The Day After? Uh, I know of it. I haven't seen it though, but <laughs> that would be a horrifying thing to absorb completely. Yeah, he's you're right. He's absorbing like total nuclear war, like mass destruction. Um, uh, the Road Warrior. Yeah, these Mad Max movies, Red Dawn, and that's going to be important mm. later when we talk about Jack Oliphant. One of his favorite movies <laughs> was Red Dawn, which was released in '84. Um, mm-hmm. and it's basically about, and then it was re-released, I think, in like 2012 with a new twist. But in the in the original version, it's Soviet troops invade the United States, and um, <laughs> they obtain a list of gun owners, and they're arresting and imprisoning mm-hmm. the gun owners and a pack of kids you know these teenagers called the wolverines by the way <laughs> they they mm-hmm. have to wage guerrilla warfare and like save the town and the country from the, the soviets so um and they're like em- embroiled in these government conspiracies because there's like inside job stuff going on but but Red Dawn was like one of his favorite movies as a kid. Um, as a teenager, you know, he, well, other kids were like, like going to, oh, I don't even know if the gap, what I don't know what they were, but where they shopped. But, you know, as teenagers do. J.C. Penny. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> like as they're like, what am I going to wear? You know, he's stockpiling uh, gallons of water in case the shit hits the fan. Um, <laughs> he was also uh, tricky, right? Holy shit! Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And okay, I hope that I don't start getting like angry letters because I'm not a trekkie. I did watch. I, I guess at some point, and <laughs> I'm not a trekkie. I either. watched the Voyagers. I don't know. There was some point where there's not. I used to, like watched the Voyager one, but like, but he loved Star Trek, and this was like one of the most enduring things you see from the time he's a child up until he's executed. It is like fucking Star Trek. He he talks about it constantly. He writes about it constantly. He fucking <laughs> loved Star Trek. He thought that the show Star Trek, he said, it holds the answers. Like, and at some, at some point, his defense, <laughs> and there's this memo, and they remark like, the primary like role models that he ever speaks of are Captain Kirk, Spock and Picard like like <laughs> and he compares everything to Star Trek like oh oh yeah well, that's like in Star Trek <laughs> it reminds me of when the uh police shooter uh Chris Dorner wrote out his manifesto and large portions of it are just him talking about the most normy ass pop culture <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah right you've got this guy and he's on like yeah this this mcveigh and he's into like all kinds of of stuff that's like not popular but then it's like everything yeah it's popular culture all star trek he he even yeah he compares himself to characters on star trek just just everything um so he yeah he goes to high school he does really good. He's a really responsible kid. Look, I was not a responsible teenager. I was fucking wild. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't get myself under reins for until my, at least my 20s, if, if, if it even happened at all. But 
like he's very responsible <laughs> and has a job um he saves his money buys his buys his first car um you know you know his parents instilled this sense of responsibility in him and he took to it and uh he has friends but he's not the most popular kid in school um but you know the people close to him noticed that when his mom left he did become maybe a little more withdrawn not as uh, just there was a shift in them and, and that's not abnormal um so that takes us up i guess to to high school now he graduates from high school and it used to be you know like boomers like they you know you graduate from high school you get a job you work at that job for your whole life you retire and that's it like that whole trajectory of like stability is laid out ahead of you of course kids these days they don't they don't even have the illusion of that and Mm-hmm. And really, it is just that an illusion. But back then, at least in like, um, in, you know, like these places, like in Western New York or even Detroit, like those are stable jobs. But um, that was starting to change because deindustrialization was going on. Factories were closing. Like he knew that that wasn't going to be feasible. Um, so. He graduates. He does really well. He actually gets a scholarship to, uh, and he decides because he got a 99 percentile on the math aptitude test. So he gets a scholarship. He goes to college for like, I think a semester, but he's just bored. Like it's not, he's just bored. It's not exciting for him. And um, as anyone that uh, had to go to college a couple times, you know, well, well, you know, sometimes you're too young to be so it just wasn't exciting relatable yeah. right like i well i dropped out of school i dropped out of school at 15 eventually i went tried to go to college and i was like oh this is bo- the, the same thing this is boring that doesn't mean i was stupid i just i always was learning mm-hmm. i was always like teaching myself stuff but um you know it wasn't until really my tw- mid-20s where i was like i'm gonna go to school and, and then i and then i didn't stop but you know, sometimes you get, you're just not ready to sit in a classroom all day. And, and maybe that's not the best way to learn anyways. So, so one thing though, his grandfather, I want to say like, so during the turbulence of his parents, um, yeah, uh, turmoils or, you know, the tur- that turbulence of his parents fighting and the, them getting together and breaking up and getting together. Um, he, the one person that he really loves is his grandfather, Ed, and, um, Ed teaches him how to shoot. Now, symbolically, psychologically, that, that's something that he just becomes so central to him is, is his love of guns. Um, and that's not because he's crazy. It's because the person that brought him comfort and stability and he looked up to and that taught him things you know like really basic things like how to make your bed the person he really loved and and actually the only person he ever really admitted to loving his grandfather is the one who taught him how to shoot and that's not uncommon in western new york either like yeah a real gun culture right yeah there's yeah and there's yeah there's a hunting you know there's a lot of hunting and i i don't hunt but like guns are not a weird 
thing, and especially back then, it wouldn't have like been alarming. But uh, you know, that's something that he really became important to him. You know, he just had a love of of guns, and um, and he loved his grandfather. Yeah, like early on, you see his love of guns still in a relatively normal parameters, right? Like right. You save up and buy them. Yeah. But and it wouldn't be till the military where it sort it's of weird. becomes maybe unhealthy and weird. Yeah, where it gets like sexualized. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and I guess I don't know. If talk about that now or later, but there are right guns start to they it becomes fetishized. Mm-hmm. Again, not exactly uncommon either. <laughs> oh sure, yeah, because. Well, I mean, that's a whole other discussion of like the relationship between mm. male American identity and guns and, and that, and, you know, not uncommon though. You yeah. know, so I'm not, I don't have a, like, I'm, I'm not worried about guns, <laughs> anyways. But, um, yeah. But his mom, so when he's like, I guess 18, she, she's the one that convinces him to get a pistol permit now think about this in this in that remember she feels unsafe from something something that i can't name because i've never seen the name for it but there's some reason that she feels unsafe and so she actually encourages him to get a pistol permit and she goes with him she goes with him and gets one with him and uh and later like after his arrest She's unable to answer certain questions about him because she had moved to Florida. So there's, and he had been like wandering around the country. But what she can remember are all the guns he owned. Like she could name them. And uh, hmm. yeah, but I, to me, that just means like she felt unsafe. And for her and for him, that represented safety. I'm just an average man with an average life. I work from nine to five. Hey, hell, I pay the price. All I want is to be 
Um, let's see here. So I think we had talked about the context of like McVeigh realizing he wasn't going to get like a factory job. He wasn't fulfilled in college. So he was looking at joining the military. So, so he realizes like, okay, well, I'm not, this isn't, you know, this isn't my father's gen, my parents' generation here. Like I'm not going to get a factory job because all the factory jobs are closing down. Um, I know my mom worked for Kodak and like the amount of layoffs, like it just wasn't feasible. Like you're just not, that's mm-hmm. not going to be what happens. Um, and college costs money. And, you know, even then there's an argument, what are you going to do with it? So, but he gets a job. So before, so he's kind of getting a little bit restless, not sure. He gets a job as an armed security guard because he has that pistol permit. Um, Mm -hmm. And that goes pretty well. And then his coworkers start to notice, well, interestingly, like some of his assignments were to like, um, he had high profile sites, including the Federal Federal Reserve Bank, which uh, or um, abortion clinics, like things that later, you know, I just I just think it's interesting some of the sites he was posted on. But uh, he, his coworkers mm-hmm. start to notice and now he's he's 18. He's like getting increasingly like erratic and maybe jumpy, hyperactive. He starts having a temper, which he. He really didn't display uh, inappropriately before this point. They say, he, and this is at 18, he just starts acting a little paranoid, a little weird. Um, and his view, or as he explains it later, he says, like, he just was, like, pretty much everyone around him was happy with just like the, the, the total normal life, like, Oh, get a job, get married, work. And uh, he says, most Americans could give a shit as long as they had beer and TV, you know, but he, he just had like an urge. And because he had always loved war movies and loved things like Rambo, you know, these like movies that are coming out, constantly in the in the 80s of really about men coming home from vietnam he he decides to join the army also he knows that the army is gonna teach him how to use weapons and guns that he would never um have access to and they're gonna teach him survival skills so these kind of um inform also what else is he gonna do he joins the army mm-hmm. and McVeigh yeah. joins the army. Yeah. He starts wanting Rambo three and he ends up in Rambo one. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, um, at the, at the time he joins the army, he tells the recruiter, you know, um, like what he really wants is, is to eventually become a member of the special forces. Because Rambo, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't say because Rambo, I'm, I'm saying that. But, you know, that was his goal. He's like, that was his entire goal. I am going to, like, go get an army and become part of the special forces. Um, and at the time he enlisted, he was healthy. And he had he had no... <laughs> <laughs> it's important to know. It is, yeah, it's important. 
because what happens later he is perfectly healthy he he scores extremely high like i think some of the highest in the aptitude tests that he's given he was he was always a good test taker which is notable right because like it is they don't necessarily want the smartest people in special forces, right? I mean, that's typically, no. I think I've heard that, like, they specifically don't want the most smart people in special forces. If you, um, in the in the footnotes of my book, I, I think I go into how, how some of the tests for special forces were designed, and to a degree, mm. slightly, who designed those tests, but yeah, what they were looking for, um, and uh yeah they no it's but he's he scores there's not any tests i'm aware of like standardized tests that tim mcveigh ever took that he didn't get like insane high scores on he Mm. i mean for whatever that's worth he was a good test taker um and 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 the reason that the army or the military gives you tests when they're when you join or are thinking about joining are for placement purposes. So it's not like it's just like a busy work. They're looking at these things. Yeah. And your whole career is, you know, I wouldn't say like predetermined, but like heavily determined by your initial tests. And then obviously you're, later performance and so forth yeah yeah and you you very literally get profiled um through these Mm. tests okay so like he takes these tests he scores very well and then he gets placed in an experimental program right oh my goodness yeah so (laughs) so yeah so just real quick when he joins He's six mm-hmm. foot one. He's 150 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes, 20, 20 vision, good health, no prior medical or dental issues, no allergies, no prescribed medications. Okay. So he gets to basic training and, and, and he realizes, or he is, you know, quick, he quickly finds out he has been put in an experimental um, program called the cohort um which stands for cohesion and operational readiness training. And what the cohort program does is um, keep soldiers together, like from, for the entire three year enlistment cycle, like from the time of basic training until the time they leave, they are kept as one. And um, in the footnotes of my book, I go into some of the history of (laughs) of the cohort union. And by the way, if people out there have read the book, but not the footnotes, it's kind of like a bonus. Like there's some bonus and there's some, a couple, there's at mm-hmm. least one Easter egg I put in there. But, um, <laughs> but so what had happened was um, in during Vietnam, soldiers were cycled out. I want to say every six months and then maybe at a, on certain levels, like officers, it would be like every six months or every year, but soldiers were cycled out. And so like, there was always a new person to commanding you and there was always new people next to you. And, and they came to, they determined that this increased turbulence and a psychological breakdown during battle. And 
um, even the whole like short timer thing, right? Where nobody wanted to get to know the new guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's no reason to like have to protect this guy next to you because he's not going to be there tomorrow, anyways. You know, that's my paraphrasing. Yeah. But um, so they had created, and they went through several variations of this experimental cohort thing, and they and they 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 started, I think, with a battalion of cohorts, but they they scaled it down to finally just like a units and companies level and um i do want to say that there was they had reason by the time tim mcveigh is put in one of these there was critics coming out saying like actually these might increase um problems because <laughs> for various reasons there were critics which people can look up like criticisms of cohort units but but that's on paper like they're already like, we're not sure if this is good or bad, but he gets put in one of these and it is experimental. So at the very least, even if nothing else that happens ever happened, there was that experiment. Yeah. And this distressed him, right? Because it sort of precluded him joining special forces yes. earlier, like as early as he would have liked or try, or I should say trying out for special forces. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He had a kind of, he was, held back you know you're held back by the progress of everybody else around you um and actually that was one of the criticisms of core you know so is that like it kept people from advancing like it, it just held certain individuals back and that caused resentment but yeah in fact at one point someone says you know if if he had known if the enlist if the recruiter told him like that that was going to be the case he probably wouldn't have even joined but he didn't know because he doesn't know till he gets there and he, he doesn't own himself mm -hmm. any longer. Um, so, so right. Yep. So he gets put in the cohort unit. So what is the significance of the cohort unit to the Oklahoma city bombing? So he, in his cohort unit, right from jump, like right from basic training, there's two other individuals in his unit, actually, all three had enlisted on the same day um, in different areas of the country. Tim McVeigh enlists in Buffalo, New York. Terry Nichols enlists in Michigan. Mm. And Michael Fortier enlists in Kingman, Arizona. And those three, <laughs> now they're put together. So this is where he meets people that were, um, well, Nichols was was tried all three have something to do with this bombing i guess is the easiest way to say it whether whatever came of that legally um you don't have the oklahoma city bombing without these three people um i guess yeah what was that great quote where that was like there wouldn't have been an oklahoma city bombing without the cohort program yeah 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 um it provided the uh, I guess that was Mark Ham, a criminologist who actually ended up working in the defense team kind of as a consultant. But he said the cohort experiment provided the mechanism and the most important source of indirect support for what would later be the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. So they're all three different. Like you've got McVeigh, who's pretty straight laced, but just kind of a uh, goofy nerd who likes guns you know 
But then you've got Terry Nichols, who's 33 years old. He's like, and in fact, it's kind of funny. I mean, I don't know if it's funny or it's ageist, but you know, you're, if I have a pile of like um, statements from, from the other people in the cohort, which I do, and I actually just came in possession of a lot more, but like they all are, all of them say like, Terry Nichols was old because they're like 18, 19. <laughs> so everyone remembers him as like, they called him Gramps because he was 33 <laughs> and he's very soft-spoken and very, very shy. So you've got him and he's like, you know, he's a, he's a farmer. He, he comes from a farming community, from farming family. Then you've got <laughs> Michael Fortier. And Michael Fortier is the same age as McVeigh, but he's like troubled. Like he, you know, he smokes weed, does what whatever, drinks. Like he's kind of a party. Cool dude alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like wild. So those they're all three very different, but somehow well, McVeigh becomes close to both of them. I don't know that Forty and Nichols were ever close uh, at all, but but these become his two good friends. Interesting. And and they remain in in contact right to the end. Yeah, and Lord knows we'll get to some the Kingdom and Nexus. God. In a in a while, but uh, I mean that's notable. Terry Nichols, of course. I think most people know. That he was the, you know, other person officially involved in the plot and so forth, and very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, he gets convicted for not even murder for manslaughter because mm-hmm. he's convicted of helping to build the bomb and to like gather the components and having foreknowledge. Um, well, these are the things that be that that that. Anyways, so mm-hmm. right, but then there's this whole other discussion of the bomb itself. But that's a whole other discussion. Um, my cat just jumps up. There. You gotta, kitty, you gotta go. You gotta go. <laughs> Pancakes. <laughs> oh, good. He's here. He's gonna be. He's here to throw a monkey wrench in anything I'm doing. <laughs> Things are going too smooth. Yep. Okay. So, so yeah. Let's see here. So, once he's in the military, other than the cohort program, what strange things begin to happen to Timothy McVeigh? Well, I'm going to get into the medical stuff in a second. But Mm -hmm. before I do that, I'm going to, I'm going to like ratchet up the weird. Um, So, okay. All right, here we are. So, about a year in to to his military experience, his company, the cohorts, it's called Charlie Company, they get sent to Heidelberg, West Germany, to train with the West German Army. McVeigh ends up later telling his attorneys in what he thinks is private, in what he thinks are conversations no one's ever going to look at but he says uh, a strange thing happened to him in germany and like one day he was just hanging out with a couple other guys they went off post and they're approached by this german man male um 
And the man starts saying strange things to him. He calls them odd statements. Um, and I don't know what exactly this man was saying, but McVeigh came to believe that the man was a German intelligence agent attempting to blackmail them or get targeting them somehow. He says blackmail, uh, but McVeigh has a real weird feeling about this situation. And uh, and as the Jones team, the Jones team is his legal defense team later, they're kind of discussing this amongst themselves. And they think it's so strange that they make an official inquiry into, into to the military about the purpose and the details of his assignment in Germany. However, the Jones team was never, his own defense team was never able to get full military records for him, which this is another, you know, we can talk about that later, but those were among the things they weren't able to get was the details about this trip to Germany. Um, but whatever he said to them seemed real enough that they decided to try to like figure it out and they couldn't. Um, now what, is interesting about this is that at that time and in the years to come, including, you know, in the years leading up to the bombing, there were a number of joint NATO US intelligence and counterintelligence operations that were going on there. And this these were in conjunction with the German armies, which I can never pronounce this, the Bundeswehrs, I get. The, yeah. uh, Bundeswehr, I think. Is that how you something like that? Okay. Sometimes you ever you like you read something but you never hear it out loud, just so you only know how you pronounce it. Don't I know it? <laughs> so it's however you say it. It it would be the West German Army's elite counterterrorism units, the GSG nine and the KSK. There were joint programs again i'm going to say it again joint intelligence and counter intelligence programs using their counter their like elite counterterrorism units at the time and i'm looking for the details of this right here um as you look that up for the listeners take note was timothy mcveigh involved in interacting in any way with the quote-unquote elite counter-terrorism units of Germany and the United States. <laughs> it sure seems like it. <laughs> seems extremely telling, in fact. Something that you would think maybe would come up in the narrative, you know, if only because it's so notable, <laughs> unless there was something to hide. That's what I would say. In 1991, I'm just, I mean, I have nothing to say to that, except you would think it would mm. come up, except for early on when maybe that information wasn't out there and i'm not actually sure you know it can only be talked about when the information comes to light so there's up yeah. until a certain point it might be excusable once it comes out i guess there's no excuse to take it off the table but um i don't think before I before I wrote about it, it was found out. Uh, I don't think that this whole trip to Germany had ever been looked looked at, and it hmm. 
And I, so I have, we have Tim McVeigh himself <laughs> to thank for telling this strange story. Um, but it, it, see, something about this disturbed him, like this experience he had in West Germany. Um, in 1991, German domestic intelligence agencies um, said that there were nearly 40,000 right-wing extremists in West Germany, uh, many of whom held white supremacist or racialist ideologies. Yeah, they're working for NATO. But don't... There was... <laughs> <laughs> there was um, an ongoing also an operation going on um, to halt the um, literature coming in from the United States like uh, white supremacist neo-Nazi type literature that was coming from the US to Germany um, there was an active program going on to halt that and interestingly, a guy that kind of becomes in, involved in in a Lohim city, his name is Dennis Mahan. He he was banned from even entering Germany because he was bringing so much like Nazi propaganda into Ger <laughs> into Germany. Um, mm -hmm. And he ends up um, living at this place, or you know, becoming tight with this Lohim city. Uh, who are being watched and who are under investigation prior to the bombing. But the other thing is that Andreas Strassmeyer, who you who brought up earlier, um, <laughs> he is a, you might call it former, or you might not call it former, member of these elite German counterintelligence units. units. <laughs> so there's that. I wanted to ask Wendy... <laughs> As in as far as anyone knows, was it Strassmeyer who met McVeigh, or was it someone else, or is it known? It's not. I guess it's not known. It's not clear. So Mick McVeigh, because he's telling this lone wolf story uh, later, like after his arrest, like that's the story he's going to tell his biographers. Mm -hmm. He's going to claim. I met him once at a gun show, but that's kind of what McVeigh says about everyone and their grandmother. Like, yeah. I met him once at a gun show, but um, he never says, I saw like Andy Strasberg came up to me in West Germany. He says that like a spook came up to him mm. and, and was like said enough strange things that he felt very uncomfortable about it. Um, but when he comes home or not home but when he when they come back to the united states like his cohort unit his behavior and his attitude has uh, radically shifted he becomes angrier he becomes um paranoid he he starts to make statements that like laws aren't real and the governments do whatever they want and like you know, he 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 changes after this trip, and it's not just his attorneys figuring this out. It's like people around him, all the fellow soldiers, are like, "Yeah, after we got back from Germany, he he changed." And his letters, if I like, if you look at them, you you like line them up and just look at those as one piece alone, you can see the shift in the way that he writes immediately after this 
trip to Germany. I do not know who that guy was or what happened there. But in the context yeah. of these things, it is somewhere in, in these footnotes, like I give a lot more information about some of these some of that context or I, I always give more than what's in the regular text um what i i don't know what it means but when you ask me like what are some weird things that happen in the military <laughs> that's one weird thing so so okay so let's see here so we have him potentially training with counter-terrorist units we have him either seeing something which disturbs him or you know, there's various ways to read it, right? Because it's like he could have been, I don't know, given an assignment there. Could've. And then he starts to act more radical at that point. Who knows, right? He could have been approached and like, right, like not even given a choice or he something upset. Mm -hmm. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't like he was happy about it. something disturbing, though, occurred. Um, and, and even if you're just going yeah. like, on his writing and you're analyzing his style of writing alone, it's clear. But then you've got the other people being like, yeah, he was acting weird when we got back for he changed. Yeah, maybe I don't there's because that portion and I don't even I later obtained more military records than I think even the Jones team had. But that's not in there. Not once. Like hmm. no information about it. Uh, the the. Um, reason the cohorts were there and like what the rest of the guys were doing they were training on something called mount which is basically urban warfare um but mm. that's not enough to upset tim mcveigh to this extent so i i don't know very very interesting i i gotta say there's gonna be times where i don't know and i like i never am going to mm -hmm. claim um, I know when I don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. or so some people have said like well what's your opinion on things and there's some things where like look I don't know what my opinion is because I don't have enough information but I have enough to think like that's weird or that's fishy yeah like <laughs> we could speculate but you know at the end of the day that's what it is like all we know is that something weird's going on in germany yeah yeah and something that that yeah. really alters his his whole personality um he just let me see if i'm yeah so at that time like there was a lot of intrigue you know like clandestine there's spies everywhere you know um in East and West Germany and a number of joint NATO US intelligence, intelligence gathering and counterintelligence operations. Like I can't even begin to say that I understand all of what was like that context. I just, that and every, anyone can look that up. Um, but to me, when Ander, Andreas Stressmeyer, who like really, I would say, you know, you want to talk Boltzmann, I don't like to say booty. I don't I don't know what you're supposed to call him, but like, <laughs> you know, I would I would look if you want to know more about Strassmeyer, look look to them um on that. Yeah. So yeah, regardless. But th there were several operations going on and all of them were like clandestine and 
So, so when so when uh, someone that is in the German counterintelligence service shows up and like is making contact with McVeigh and McVeigh is calling him, <laughs> who knows? There's there's a uh, some sort of precedent there. Yeah, and 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 Andius and Andius. Asmeyer, and if Andy Strassmeyer, there's like like he's a whole he like you said in the beginning like he's a whole thing unto himself that could take several more hours. So I'll let the those other guys deal with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what else is going on? Right from the beginning. Um. So I gotta say, like I'm looking through. I spent I don't know, four years or something every moment I could in these archives like I'd go I would be in coursework and the second we had a break like winter break spring all these or sometimes during class I would just um I would go to Austin and go into these archives that no one had ever looked through before but actually it was Stephen Jones that told me they existed um and he really just by saying that, he, he he changed the whole direction of my life. But uh, <laughs> and luckily, I made some cool friends, you know, in Austin. So I'd be able to like crash on their couch and like stay, and, and everything was, you know, so, so that's what I would do. And I'm looking through these medical records, and uh, I got them all lined up. And, and and so what you're seeing is an inordinate amount of dentist and doctor visits now first of all right um shortly after basic training ends he he's given the standard battery of that well standard battery of vaccines and immunizations so like measles mumps rubella smallpox blah 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 but then also some maybe not so standard ones that were like just coming out um, and so we're going to exclude those for now from the set because everyone gets those. But like, so he joins in May. In June, he, he starts to have the first of non-routine medical visits. Um, and so you've got, which I'm going to talk about what those were. But and then you can also overlay letters because he was a prolific writer. He just wrote constantly letters to people um and so in july he writes to his mom and his sister and he tells them he's been feeling sick he's got a fever and he, they're gonna give him a chest x-ray and then like two days later he writes a letter saying he has walking pneumonia but he went to the doctor and at mcveigh's request at his own request um he wasn't prescribed medication because he says, and this is weird, he says he didn't. I didn't. I don't want to establish a medical profile. Um, first of all, if you have pneumonia, I don't know if you can just tell the army doctor I don't don't treat me. I I don't know how that that particularly that one works. Everything we both know about like army healthcare, you don't have a lot of autonomy in making these decisions. No. No. And so here's he decide he says straight up to like I don't want to establish a medical profile, but this is exactly what begins to happen. 
Um, however, in those records, if he did see a doctor for a fever, x-ray, or pneumonia, those visits aren't in the medical records. So all we have is like him writing letters. At this point, he's not a, a, a he, he does what you would call a compulsive liar or storyteller. Like this, his, he, he's still pretty like straightforward still like about, mm-hmm. you know, if he says I had pneumonia and I'm not feeling good. I, I think he's being honest at this point, you know, he, but those records, like those visits aren't in there, but, um, so nothing happens until September. So now a couple months later, at this point, he gets more shots. He gets yellow fever, typhoid, and something called plague shot one vaccination. Um, a month later, in October, he gets plague shot two. No cons- there's no consent forms. Um, even just perfunctory, even if they've got a gun to your head, there's still, I think, supposed to be a consent form going on. But, you know, there's no consent forms. And these records have redactions. So, like, even the records that the defense team themselves got, not everything's redacted. But the names of the doctors giving these particular shots are redacted mm. um including yeah the people that are giving this last or this latest round of of shots of vaccines and inoculations um in october 4 he arrives at the medical barracks complaining of chronic back pain and he says it's been going on for three weeks. And that's when he had gotten this first round, like with that latest round of immunizations. And the doctor makes a strange note on the records. It says, Private McVeigh used to lift a lot of bags at home. Uh, um, and then McVeigh says the pain or tells the doctor like in the record it's so bad he he wants an x-ray so now this is the second time mcveigh's talking about getting x-rays he gets an x-ray and that's in the records and the results are normal but used to lift a lot of bags at home i i don't even know what that means or he never had back problems but now he's got as soon as he gets this last round he's Somehow he's having back problems and the doctor decides to put down that it's because he lifted bags. I, I don't know. Um, never again do I hear about lifting bags. Um, mm-hmm. So so two days later, he goes back to the doctor. Once again, he's complaining about his back. Two days after that, um, his gums begin to bleed. And he goes to the doctor because his gums are bleeding. Okay, this is October. November, he writes to his best friend at home, who who he'll keep writing to up until the time of the bombing. And he writes to him. And he says he's that he had come to the decision that he's going to uh, return home to his father's and enclose the house in Evergreens. Although he didn't think that this was going to, quote, stem the avalanche of decay, unquote, that he saw as imminent. Um, I feel like it's significant because I feel like medically, that's when an avalanche of decay happens. And 
Um, so I'm, I just, that's, that's me. I'm putting that in there, but it, it's like all lining up in this timeline. So I just thought that was a strange thing to say, the avalanche of decay. So basically his letters, at least that he's writing from the military, there's no further mention of him having shots, aches, pains, dental issues, or any of the symptoms he would get medical attention for um we're gonna keep talking about the medical records but i'm just gonna say in the two years of active duty that that he was in active duty in the united states army he went to the doctor uh, and that includes dentists over 75 times and actually i wrote that book and after the book came out i got more records <laughs> there's more than that not a lot more that i found hmm. but you know a handful more so but it's over 75 and that's just the available portion of records. Now, I think you talked about this in the book, but also just anecdotally, you know, other people were in the U S military at the same time sure. <laughs> who talked about it almost being like pulling teeth to see a doctor <laughs> like once yeah. other than the routine stuff. I, I, I talked to as in, in the, you know, as best as I could, I talked to as many of those cohorts as I can. I, I could still, I could mm -hmm. talk to a lot more. But the ones that I talked to were like, oh, yeah, no, you can't just go to the doctor willy-nilly every day for no reason. Like, it's a pain in the ass. And they mm -hmm. look down at you like you'll be penalized for it. So it's very strange that, like, there's periods of time where he's going to the doctor three times a week and yet it's he's being written up as being this like model soldier like yeah let me let me ask you this so the records show that he went to the doctor that many times the records not the letters the records yeah yeah and then much of this isn't in the letters do the cohorts recall him going to the doctor this much nope now later after he gets out of the army, people do know, like his friends and family at home and, and in the Buffalo area. And then some of the people like he knows in Michigan, they do. They know he's sick. Mm -hmm. They know he's really sick. But none of these soldiers uh, that I talked to, and these were a couple of them were like really close with him. And no. They they're like, and in fact, one, like one said, like if he was doing that, I would have noticed because we're together all the time. Like, it's not that they were together every second, but the they would have known, like, oh, he's a sick puppy. Like, yeah. Well, it's like it's just so weird, right? Like, because like it is weird. Like, why would his record say that, and then like no one else remembers it? You know, like. I mean, I'm not going to get to after the Gulf War because that is a, another situation, but, or kind of, yeah. you know, but like just um, this is all prior to the Gulf War. Um, and this is during yeah. rapid promotions. He's, he's like being promoted. He's even like getting sent to something called, he calls it the super school in Fort Benning, um, which he says <sighs> is a huge privilege. They only send one person every three years. So, but. Wait. What the hell is the super school? It's some kind of quote unquote like I think it's leadership development. 
<laughs> and there's not a lot okay. more I know about that other than he he's got, he's sent to it um, and that it's like none of the other cohorts are sent to it. Now, I've never been in the military, but, you know, I've talked about this as show while I was doing this research, like enough people that were and in fact, at one point had a research partner that had been and like he said it was weird. But but yeah, whatever that sort of during this time period where he's like the best soldier in the world, um, he takes a physical exam and I'm going to consider that to be a routine one. He takes a physical exam and he qualifies for special forces. And that's in August 1990. And at that time, they give him a chest x-ray and routine blood tests, including one for HIV, and that comes out negative. And when the doctors for the special forces thing exam ask him about his health, he says it's very good and he's not taking medications. They ask him specifically, have you ever had any of these symptoms? And he says he hasn't. These symptoms are swollen and painful joints, frequent and severe headaches, dizziness, fainting spells, chronic or frequent colds, <laughs> severe tooth or gum trouble, headaches, <laughs> oh, yeah, it, um, head injuries, skin diseases, pain or pressure in the chest, indigestion, stomach, liver, or intestinal trouble, Adverse reactions to serum, drugs, medications, broken bones, tumors, growth, cysts, back pain, or foot trouble. So, and again, he responds negatively to this. He, in these records, he is the doctor for almost all of these things. <laughs> it's almost like the Jones team or whatever got like his sheep dip records and his real records, like portions of both or something. Yeah. And I don't think they spent, I never saw any like internal documentation that they ever lined them up like that. Like they did look into Gulf Warrior's and, but that's because he tells them to basically like, mm -hmm. they didn't, I don't see anywhere where they counted up these, you know, they may have and may not have written it down, but right. But here's the thing. That special forces um, doctor, Dr. Bloomquist, and sometimes his name is redacted and sometimes it's not. And that's how I have it is that sometimes for some reason it's not. <laughs> he would have access, right? Wouldn't he have access to his like file to determine you're acceptable for special force? Your... You would think. You, you would you would think because and this happens like on the base.
so strange. Every day, people are stealing planes. Oh, there are strange things are happening every day. No, ain't that strange every day? Every day, yes, there are strange things happening every day. Well, let me tell you something. If you sully your neighbor's name, you're gonna reap the very same. Oh, there are strange things happening every day. But if you feel that straight and plain, you won't have to bear the blame. There are strange things happening every day. That's that. So in August, he goes to the primary leadership development course, uh, which, by the way, since the time it's been trained, it's been changed, it's called Warrior Leader Course. But um, <laughs> this is a course for non like people that are tapped to be non commissioned officers. Um, and the evaluator there says, he demonstrated academic potential for selection to higher school or training and displays all the skills, knowledge, and attributes of an excellent soldier. Okay, that's August 23rd. Um, September 18th, he graduates from that and re-enlists the same day. October 4th, just a couple weeks later, he is found qualified for Special Forces Qualification Course. December, he's granted secret clearance. Now, um, let me turn the page here. Going back, 
he, in this period, up until the Gulf War, has 26 dental visits from January 1989 until December 1990. <laughs> so, you know, in about a year and a month's time, 26 dental visits. One of them occurred on September 6th while he was in Fort Benning at the right like so there yeah he's in two places at once um mm. and he remember he said he never had any dental issues prior to the army but like by the time he's out it's like ev nearly ever all of his teeth out of 22 teeth 23 of them had begun to decay um you could say like, oh, he just didn't brush his teeth. It doesn't matter. The the army dentist isn't going to see you every for every little ache or pain or routine. You know, can you check my teeth? Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't make sense. No, no, it it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And well, I guess I'm assuming we're going to talk about different ways these could be interpreted. But like, um overlooked during that special forces physical exam were seven non-routine visits and one <laughs> in one visit where it's filed under acute medical care his name is listed as timothy mckirsch um and it says at 6 10 a.m but it's using military time mckirsch appeared in the medical barracks complaining of quote burn blisters unquote there's no other information about that um he also sought medical symptoms for diarrhea vomiting abnormal bowel sounds and uh, dizziness and skin abnormalities specifically like skin tags at one and one of them <laughs> he shows up to the military doctor and he says there's um his toe is oozing fluid hmm. uh which is gross, but like his actually his feet become a, another thing. He and on May twenty second, <laughs> the doctor diagnoses him with dehydration and gastroenteritis, and gives him over the counter medication, but those don't help, and he keeps showing up for diarrhea and vomiting. In between the all of these digestive visits he gets two additional hiv tests those are not routine the doctors some doctor if these records are real some doctor was like oh boy you got a problem and sends him for like hiv two more hiv tests one of them is before the special forces qualification exam so once again that that special forces uh physical is is just strange um so the other one was actually requested. Okay, so the other one was requested by the special forces doctor, but then ends up signing off and saying he's fine. In November uh, six, in November thirteenth, six twenty-five a.m., he visits the medical barracks for the last time before the Gulf, and he says that um, there's pain in his shoulder, and there's a tick in it. T-I-C-K. Like, I, I don't know what that means, but McVeigh says he has a tick in his shoulder. On That's on November 13th. That same day, he writes a letter to his best friend at home. And instead of saying, like, oh, my God, 
all this, my, my, like I'm a mess physically. Um, he just tells them that he just received orders to go to special forces tryout. And he's expecting that he's going to get sent in late November or in December. But he doesn't mention these medical visits. Um, right before he's supposed to go to special forces tryout, the commander cancels his leave and his entire unit is deployed to the Persian Gulf. And and that year, um, so in his letter to his friend, and I'm gonna mention this because I just got like chewed out by <laughs> recently by someone here at home. He says, he tells his friend like, well, we just, my orders were canceled. I just, I'm gonna have to, go, we're getting deployed to the Gulf. Hopefully I'll be home on time to see the bills uh, in the Super Bowl, basically. So, and he says, come home to see the Bills beat Miami. I just wanted to say, I know the Bills beat Miami. They just lost the Super Bowl. So you can cut that part out if you want. But like, I just got <laughs> like chewed out. Like someone at home read my book. And this is a someone that I, I you know care about very deeply. But they're a big Bills fan, as is everyone here. <laughs> and they, and the, the criticism that I was given was, you said they didn't beat Miami. So I just want to clear that up. <laughs> I don't, That's I don't great. know about sports. Like I don't care, but I, sorry. Now, let me ask you. So we sort of touched on this before, but we alluded to the fact that maybe McVeigh could have been on somebody's radar or made contact before, but it sure seems like it's at least for sure we have proof that something starts with McVeigh when he's in the military. Oh right, yeah. There's no way after after this point at, during this this yeah. is this is it. Like now, there's a big problem to that's not ha, has yet to be explained and or and a lot of those records are still not available. Yeah, something is happening as to what it is. <laughs> it ain't exactly not clear. clear. <laughs> it, it's so hard not to quote that song. It's great. <laughs> you have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's Coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you. God bless.
Dexter L. 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 Dexter L. Today, Mr. Kirk, Dexter's in school. I'm afraid he's not, Miss Birchmore. Dexter's truancy problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Well, Mr. Kirk, I'm enough fed as you to learn Dexter's truancy, but surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It is the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Sane, sane, sane. <laughs> That boy needs therapy. Purely psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. Well, what does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny soup. let's have a cheese. How will I count three? That 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 boy needs therapy. He was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. Sometimes a parrot talks. <laughs> 